Good morning. We're in the Gospel of Luke still? Yes. Uh, Popping there. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44, and uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. My name's Brad Cheney, if we haven't met before. And um, let, let me say this before I begin the reading today. I think it's an, important to make, to, to, to just point this out. The passage is focused on a bunch of miraculous healings and exorcisms Jesus performs. It's important to just to note that you know, Jesus didn't go around pulling rabbits out of a hat. He didn't catch bullets in his teeth, and he didn't levitate five inches or five feet off the ground. His miracles and his miraculous healings are not a magical departure from the natural order of things. Rather, they are a restoration of the natural order of things. Or in other words, when Jesus works a miracle, he's returning things to the way that they ought to be. So it would be a complete mistake for us to interpret his miracles as some showy display of raw divine power and, and might. That, that's not what's going on at all. Instead, these are a signpost of what the world is supposed to look like and what the world will one day be like under the healing hands of the world's rightful king. Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach the people. They were amazed. And that word amazed, uh, you notice I called the sermon series Luke, the Gospel of Amazement, because it appears so many times throughout the gospel. Um, uh, First time I'm commenting on it, but yes, they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them, uh, before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching with authority and power? He drives out or he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and he went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from, this is Simon Peter, by the way. Uh, She was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. Um, So this takes place in the home of, of Simon Peter. Now, definitely not the main point of the story, but I just think it's one of those interesting incidental details. That normally, if you, um, you know, if a woman's husband died, she would go to live with her brothers or one of her sons. So properly speaking, Simon's mother-in-law was not his responsibility. (laughs) And yet here it is, she's, it seems to be living in his own house. And we think of Peter, don't we, as the brash, impetuous disciple who's always doing, but here we have maybe just a little sliver of just the, the tenderness and the, the open-hearted generosity of, uh, of that guy. Yeah. So she got up and waited. And then verse 40. 
When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. In verse 42, we see this feature often in Jesus' life, that at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Skip ahead in your Bible to chapter 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Such a beautiful, tender display. Um, Again, you know, nobody... Lepers were untouchables, right? So most likely, nobody had ever touched this man for a very long period of time. Jesus reaching out and placing his hand on someone who had not experienced human touch for such a long period um, is... There's another beautiful example of his tenderness that I'll I'll speak about in a moment, but, but that's certainly one of them. I mean, he could have just said, be gone, leprosy, but he reaches out and he touches him. Then Jesus ordered him, verse 14, Do not tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them, to the priests. Yet the news spread about him all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and he tried to take and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what was in their thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was, there's a word again, amazed, and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Let's pray. 
Indeed, Father, we have heard and seen remarkable things in this, your word. And we want to understand it better. And we want to respond to you in true and vibrant faith. So please, Father, open our ears and our hearts to what your spirit is saying. That we might more fully believe in and trust in your only begotten son. And God's people said, amen. I want to focus on the last of these stories. Uh, you know, each of these stories are preachable. I could probably preach an entire sermon on every one of them, but I want to focus on the healing of the paralytic. And I want to bring your, to your attention three things. First, we'll look at the friends who are seeking the healing. Second, the need for forgiveness. And third, the, the costly gift of forgiveness. So the friends, the need, and the cost. Do you ever catch yourself doing this when you're reading the Gospels? Sometimes I do this. When I read, I, I'm reading through the Gospels, I read the characters almost in a cartoonish fashion. Like We may not think of the, the sick person in the story as a real complex human being, rather they're a cartoonish, one-dimensional foil for the advancement of the story. And so a beggar in the Bible is kind of a cartoonish beggar, and a leper in the Bible is kind of a cartoonish leper. And part of the reason we do this is because, you know, the Gospels, they're not war and peace. They're not thousand-plus pages where you're, you have the time in order to create these multi-layered secondary characters. You, there's not a lot of time for character, secondary character development of the Gospels because, because that's not the main point. It's always moving forward very quickly, you know, advancing the story as Jesus gets closer and closer to uh, Jerusalem. But the unfortunate result of that is we as modern readers who are accustomed to that type of uh, novel reading we don't really consider these, these people as people. And we don't really consider their, their humanity. So in the case of this paralytic, uh, imagine him, not as a cartoon, imagine him as a man who cannot go on a summer walk with his friends, who cannot even walk to work, so he cannot work a job, he does not have a livelihood. He could not go out and see John the Baptist at the River Jordan and be baptized. He could not probably have a wife and, and probably have a family. So this condition that he has, this paralysis, it touches every bit of his life. His, con his condition is so big, it's sort of cataclysmic. It, it touches everything. That's what we need to see first and foremost. Then we get the uh, setting here. We have Jesus preaching in a, in a uh, home. The, pay, the place is absolutely packed, you know, 20 deep. And Jesus is preaching to the, to the uh, folks. <laughs> Can you picture it? And all of a sudden, you, there's a crunch. <laughs> scrape. You know, I, I'm accustomed to preaching through distractions, but like that's not a distraction you would be able to get over very easy. A crunch right above 
You know, and little flakes of mortar are falling to the ground. And then all of a sudden, a skylight opens up in, in the ceiling, and light is streaming down. And then there's darkness, and something else is streaming down. There's a man on a mat. Uh, you got to get the picture, right? Quite remarkable, quite, quite surprising, quite... Um, it's a strange interruption, certainly, for a sermon. Do we have any idea how much work it would take to dig a hole in somebody's roof? To be able to lay a prostrate man and bring him through it? I mean, so their roofs, if you recall, their rooftops were completely flat. And they would often, they would walk upstairs and, and live upstairs and do all kinds of things upstairs. I mean, you could have an entire party on your roof. The uh, cross beams were, would lie horizontal. On top of that, they would have a very thick patch of thatch. And then on top of that, you would have several feet of mud. And maybe we, hear, we read about how it says there are tiles. And so there would be these, not concrete, but very, very thick, very hard mud tiles at the top of the roof. All of that to say, it was hard to dig through this. And the owner of the house would have been none too happy to see the ceiling of his home be completely destroyed. Can you see the image and it be real and not cartoonish? Can you see this man lying? All right, he gets dropped in front of Jesus. He's lying on his back. He's looking straight up at Jesus. And Jesus is looking straight down at him. And you, and you, you wonder if, there, if he didn't even mumble under his, uh, under his voice at that moment, something along the lines of, it was their idea. <laughs> this was their idea, not my idea. And Jesus, they must have made eye contact. He looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the four friends are up on the roof looking down through the hole, listening to all of this. And when they hear, your sins are forgiven, they are thinking, but what about the legs? <laughs> we came for the arms and legs. So I don't need what sins. No, we came. Don't you see this? And we have, um, I think, would have, would have been just kind of a, a beautifully uh, comedic but tender moment. Did you know that none of the gospel writers tell us the connection between this man's sins and this man's paralysis? Um, it could have been, you know, many people in the first century associated any kind of suffering that you had with karma. So if you, say, were born with a birth defect or you contracted a serious illness, it must have been karma. It must have been the result of your sin or your parents' sin. And so the man may very well believe that he's laying there paralyzed because of something that he had done. And on the other hand, it could have been something he had actually done. Because sometimes sin is causative. I mean, if you're drinking and partying and living a reckless lifestyle and you jump on the back of your motorcycle and you do 100 miles an hour and wrap it around a telephone pole, it will break every bone in your body and you won't have anyone to blame but yourself. You're not a victim you're to blame. And so, you know, maybe he had done something to himself. Maybe he didn't. Who knows? Jesus knows. Jesus knows the story. It doesn't matter if we know. Jesus knows the story. And he says, 
this tender, this tender expression to him. Friend, my friend, my friend, your sins are forgiven. Later in the Gospels, Jesus will raise a little girl from the dead. And what was, we know this one, you'll remember this particular resurrection. Um, he speaks in Aramaic. It's recorded for us in Aramaic. He says to the little girl, he sits down next to her, he takes her by the hand, and he speaks the words to her, Talitha kum. Kum is Aramaic for get up. Talitha is the diminutive word that a mother or dad would say to a little child, like um, little one, or it would be kind of like, in euphemistic language, it would be kind of like honey or sweetheart. Jesus sits down next to a dead girl, takes her by the hand, and like a parent on a sunny morning says, honey, it's time to get up. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Like, why don't we trust this man more? What, What more could we want in terms of compassion? And tenderness and kindness. This is our Savior. This is the Savior that we celebrate. Okay, I've done a lot of explaining the, um, trying to picture for you the environment. Here's the main thing I want to say about the friends. This man could have never gotten to Jesus without his friends. If it weren't for crazy, relentless certifiably insane friends. We can even imagine the homeowner like watching these guys climb up onto his house, start to hack away at the rooftop and yell at them, you guys are crazy. And they are crazy, aren't they? They are. Um, you guys are crazy. And in a sense, this man can't be saved without his crazy friends. He can't. Um, if not for their determination to bring them to Jesus Christ. And for, I just want to point this out to you. You know, that's how we're normally saved, guys. That is how we're normally saved. Someone is crazy determined to bring us to Christ. Either that is our parent, or if we didn't grow up in a Christian home, it is an actual friend who is determined to bring us to Jesus Christ. I'll ask you this question. Are you a crazy friend? Are you a crazy friend to someone? Or are you a crazy parent? Now, when we use the word crazy parent, we typically picture a tiger mom who's going to drive her daughter to make 99s on all of her tests and play flawless piano and settle nothing less than than, uh, for Harvard, right? Or a crazy sports parent. We know those, don't we? They're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars and years of their lives on soccer fields and basketball gyms and club everything in order to land the college scholarship. A crazy parent is somebody who will do absolutely anything for their child to achieve the holy grail. And what I found in 16 years of pastoral ministry is there are very few crazy Christian parents. There are very few. Like crazy in the sense of crazy determined to bring their kids to Jesus. If you if you do the if you look at the statistics. It pretty much bears it out, no matter if it's Barna or Lifeway or whoever's doing the survey. The kids who grow up in a Christian home and then persevere in faith and flourish in faith later in life, they usually have three characteristics. Number one, their home was a place that placed a huge 
priority on the church, the community of the brothers and sisters. And church was, is not something they're in like once every three weeks or once every four weeks. Church is just their life. It, it's a centralizing to- feature of their life. Number two, they create a home environment that is full of grace and love. And number three, they have a happy marriage. Now, you may not think of your marriage that way, but your marriage is one of the most important tools, actually, to bring your, your child to faith um, because it says so much to the child. Um, and it's those three things. Uh, if you have that, it doesn't guarantee your kids are going to be faithful and persevere, but the odds go up dramatically in your favor. If church is central, if grace and love are in the home, and if there's a happy marriage between husband and wife. Likewise, if you have a friend who wants to bring, if you have a friend you want to bring to faith in Jesus Christ, the statistics are very similar. Quality time spent with them in hospitable friendship, being a a person of grace and love, and C, introducing them to your church community. Again, I just gave you a point on something, or made a point of something that is not the main point of the passage. The the passage isn't about the friends, but I think that the friends are a wonderful expression of crazy faith and crazy love. And if, you know, I pray for our church that God would give us this kind of determination to bring the world to his son, Jesus. Like if we had this, if all the churches had this, If all the churches were like these guys, I mean, imagine what the world would be like. Number two, the need for forgiveness. Do we really believe that a person's greatest need is to be in a right right relationship with God through the forgiveness of their sins? If we do believe that, it will give urgency to our efforts. Let me illustrate it this way. One of the great writers of the 20th century, Franz Kafka, in 1914, Kafka wrote one of his well, most well-known works. It's a novel entitled The Trial. How many have read The Trial? Well-known, but actually a lot of us don't end up reading it. So the main character of The Trial, you might remember, is a guy, he's, he's called Joseph K. And in the beginning of the story, Joseph K. is leading a very normal life. Everything's fine, everything's hunky-dory. Then Joseph K. is arrested, he's taken into custody, and nobody tells him what he did wrong. He's wondering, why why was I arrested? What What am I being arrested for? He wonders, oh, what am I being accused of? He's moved from prison cell to prison cell, and hearing to hearing, and nobody throughout the story ever explains. All they say to him is, in true bureaucratic fashion, you have to talk to my supervisor. <laughs> you know, I've got my orders, talk to my supervisor. Everyone he meets in the story is unsympathetic, cold, and implacable. So Joseph K. is puzzling over, over his whole life. He goes back and he revisits his life. Maybe I was arrested for that. Maybe I did that, but that doesn't seem like it would have been bad enough for me to be arrested, but maybe this happened. You go through the whole story, what hap- what, what's the end result? He never finds out. Hearing after hearing, jail cell after jail cell, he never finds out what he's arrested for. Finally, at the end of the book, a prison guard takes him out into the courtyard and stabs him right through the heart, and he dies. 
Like, cause, cause, could there be any other ending to Russian literature than, you know, always the happy Russian ending. It's dark. It's confusing. We're, we're, it may seem meaningless. Like, we're never going to know what Kafka is trying to tell us in the trial. But actually, Kafka left a diary entry in which we, we think we know what he meant in the whole story. In one of his diaries, uh, he says something that many have taken to be the theme of the trial. You may have heard this before. Quote, The state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. The state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. Now, what does he mean by that? Here's what I think he means. We clearly live in a world that no longer traffics in the uh, categories of specific sins. We clearly live in a world where we don't believe there's going to be a final judgment. And yet... And we live in a world where people say uh, they can't tell you really what's morally right or wrong. I mean, you have one person who will tell you that your affair with someone who is not your spouse, that's okay. And another person will tell you, it's not okay. We can't even agree on morality. And yet, and yet we still feel that there is something deeply wrong with us. Though people today have abandoned the ancient categories of sin and judgment, yet we still have a profound, inescapable sense that we, if we were examined, we would be rejected. Isn't that part of the reason why we hide ourselves from everyone else? We have a very deep sense that that we have to hide our true self or at least control what other people know about us because secretly we feel that we aren't acceptable. I remember a story that the late R.C. Sproul told about 25 years ago, a guy came to him and said, R.C., he was a man who had a very successful counseling practice, psych, psych, uh, pardon, I can't even get the word out, psychiatric practice in South Florida. He came to R.C. and he said, R.C., I will, I will pay you a king's ransom if you were to come on staff with me and be part of this counseling service and join my team. And R.C. Sproul replied, why? I, I don't have a... I don't have a psychiatry degree. Why would you want me? And he said to him, R.C., 95% of my clients don't need a psychiatrist. They need a priest because their lives are so plagued with unresolved guilt. If Kafka writes about it, it's probably a thing. If anecdotal stories tell us anything, it's probably a thing. Like, we know that people objectively need to have their sins forgiven in order to be right with God. Um, We know that theologically and objectively, but let's also remember what it means for people existentially. Like, I really think people, it's kind of like if you've ever had a toothache that's in the back of your mouth, that's always there and always throbbing. And it's not an acute ache. It's not an acute pain, but it's just a null, dull, constant pain. I think that's what guilt is for so many people in the world today. We may forget that as Christians because we, we traffic in the forgiveness of our sins all the time. We've heard, how many times have we heard that God forgives us of our sins? We hear it every Sunday, thankfully, in the assurance of pardon. And uh, 
One of the most frustrating parts of the Christian life is that you can know that your sins are forgiven and still feel like junk. You just still feel terrible about this, that, or, or the other. Like we have been given the greatest thing and we know it, and yet it no longer expresses itself as a felt need. We don't feel that need. And I think we make the mistake of forgetting that, that there are tons of people outside these walls who that is a felt need for. Um, and so don't let your emotions obscure the simple fact that the forgiveness of sin is every human being's greatest need in this world. That is why we should be crazy friends. Thirdly and finally, the cost of forgiveness. If you will, look with me at verse 21. Did I say 21 um, on this page? 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They are absolutely right in that statement. Uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry walk into a room. Tom reaches over and punches Dick in the nose. Harry turns around and says, Tom, I forgive you. Well, Dick is going to turn around and say, excuse me, Harry, but you can't forgive Tom for hitting me in the nose. You can only forgive somebody if the sin is against you. You can't forgive somebody if the sin is against somebody else. So if Jesus Christ walks over to a man and says, all your sins are forgiven, who can say such a thing? They understand, don't they? That there's an implied, he's making an implicit claim of deity. They're absolutely right. It's blasphemous for anybody other than God to say they're all forgiven. Well, next Jesus gives them a riddle. He asks, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority in himself on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Such an excellent riddle, because on the one hand, healing looks so much harder, doesn't it? Like anybody can say, I forgive your sins. Go in peace, right? Not everybody can miraculously heal paralytics. But the great irony is what the rest of the gospel demonstrates is the forgiveness of sins, the true forgiveness of sins is the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? As one author puts it, if you look above at the sky at night and you see the billions upon billions of stars, each one more immense than we can really grasp, organized in hundreds of millions of galaxies, wheeling across the far reaches of the universe, distant from us and from one another by spaces that are vast beyond our power to comprehend. God's creating that awe-inspiring, stunning, spellbinding universe was a mere trifle. A mere trifle compared to what it took to take away our sins. You go out and look at the, the night sky. Look up at it and realize that th- that was child's play. It was child's play compared to the cross. Let me finish here. 
Uh, it's very important to emphasize this in a passage like uh, where we have healings and sick folk and lepers and fevers and leprosy. It's important to emphasize this because the problem of evil and suffering is probably the most often cited reason why people don't believe in God. Leprosy, fever, paralysis. I can't believe in a God who would make a world like this. So much suffering, so much death. Do you know what the Christian reply is to that? Our reply is God didn't create a world like this. We did. We did. We ruined the good world that he made. And if you look around, we're still ruining it day after day. We did. And our rebellion resulted in a curse being placed on this world. And Jesus has come in to restore the world from its curse back into the state in which it was meant to be. So every time you see in the Bible, you read in the Bible, Jesus feeding the hungry, it is a signpost to say this is what the world will be like under the healing hands of the king. No more starving children, no more distended bellies and flies on their faces. Every time he, he stills a storm on the Sea of Galilee, this is what the world will be like under the healing hands of the king where there are no more hurricanes and tornadoes and thousand-year floods. Every time he heals, this is what the world will look like under the healing hands of the king. Um, and every healing is a visible demonstration of what it will be like to have your sins gone forever. And so can you see this man, not as a cartoon, but as a real man, jumping up from his mat, standing up, beginning to laugh, beginning to cry, running home to his mother and father, hugging them, kissing a woman, having a family, having sons and daughters, not a cartoonish figure, but a real man, just like you and me. As great as that, as that picture must have been to see even greater is to have your sins forgiven and forgotten as far as the east is from the west. For the, heal, the hands of the king are healing hands, and we know that because they are pierced hands, pierced for our transgressions, pierced for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen.